Well, good morning. Open up, if you would, this morning, please, to Hebrews chapter 11. We are in part three of our series called The Fruit of Faith. Um, and, uh, and here's what we have on tap today. Our theology is this. Through faith in Christ, we are more than conquerors. Through faith in Christ, we are more than conquerors. Our application today is this. Seek to develop the faith we have in Christ and find our strength in Him. And our prayer today is, God, grant us deep and lasting faith in your work and in your promises. When we talk about faith, uh, for me, growing up, probably uh, most of my childhood, I thought of, uh, I thought of faith in terms of salvation. Do you believe in Jesus or don't you believe in Jesus? And that began to shift for me a little bit when I was 10. And I heard a sermon by one of my favorite preachers up to that point in my life. In fact, it might have only been my second preacher I'd ever sat under. But uh, a guy got up and he preached on faith about, not faith that led to salvation, but faith that was trusting God for your day-to-day life, trusting God in every moment of your life. And I, I think that somehow we, we kind of miss that. We miss this idea. We, listen, the most important thing is knowing that Christ is God. That's the most important thing. Knowing that Christ died for you, that he was raised from the dead, that he ascended into heaven. That is the most important thing for you to, to have your faith in. But God is infinite in his ways and in his nature, his glory, his power, his person. He's infinite and there's more of him to know and there's more of him to enjoy. And we can learn more about God and we can, uh, we can come to understand God better. We can come to understand God more fully. And in that, our faith is developed. Our, our faith, we don't want our faith to be stagnant. We don't want to say, okay, thank you, Jesus. I believe in you for salvation. I've got it from here. We want our faith to continue to grow. And one of the things that's really wonderful is we can look at Hebrews 11 and we can see these examples of people who put faith in God. Now, I want to point something out to you. Uh, the author of Hebrews has spent the first nine and a half, ten chapters talking about why people should believe in Christ, why Christ is better. He starts off in chapter 1 saying that Christ is better than the angels. Chapter 2, Christ is better than Moses. He talks about how Christ is better than the uh, Old Testament sacrifices. He talks about how the death of Jesus is more powerful, that it, that it saves for all time those who believe. He talks about how Jesus is a better high priest than the priest in the Old Testament. He talks about how heaven is a better temple and tabernacle than the temple and tabernacle of the Old Testament. Christ is better than everything, and that's the point he's trying to make. And these are people who have put their faith in a Messiah. They say, man, we believe in the Messiah. We believe in the Savior. And he's going, listen, the object of that faith is Jesus. Be sure you're holding to the object of that faith. And he begins to remind them about halfway through chapter 10 that we know that if we put faith in God, like these are the things that we can trust God for and that what God says he's going to do, he does. And then almost, if you can imagine it almost like as an argument, not like a fight argument, but like somebody making a case. And he's, he's saying, Jesus is better than the angels. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than the Old Testament sacrifice. Heaven is better than the temple. Jesus is better than the priesthood. Everything that God says he will do, he's trustworthy to do. Put your faith in Jesus. And then chapter 11 is, look at all these other guys who believed a message God gave. Look at all these other guys who declared something or that, that God declared something to them and they believed it. And so Hebrews chapter 11 is an example of other people who have believed God for something and God did it. And so that's what the author of Hebrews is doing. Like, look at all these other people who have done this. And so that would be like, uh, I mean, this is a stupid example, but, uh, <laughs> you know, like God is bigger than anything. So every example is going to be stupid. But if, uh, if I said, hey, we're going to go on a church cruise next year and it's going to be a lot of fun. And we're going to have like this, this church retreat revival thing on a cruise and it's going to be a great time. Some of you are going to come up to me afterwards and go, when are we doing that? This is just an analogy. Okay. Uh, but, but. Like, we're going to do this church cruise, and we're going to do this week-long revival, and it's going to be a lot of fun, and da-da-da-da, and, and, and you're like, well, I don't know. And I say, look at all these other cruises people have gone on. Look at all these other experiences people have had. Talk to your friends, and once you start talking to all your friends who have had these really great cruise experiences, you kind of go, oh, yeah, maybe we should do that. So Hebrews chapter 11, if you'll allow it, if you'll allow the, the parallel, is us talking to all of our friends and finding all these other places where people believed God, trusted God, and were being invited to do the same. 
or at least the, the audience of the book of Hebrews is invited to do the same. Pick up with me in Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to pick up where we left off last week with Moses forsaking uh, Egypt, forsaking the wealth of Egypt, and, and considering Christ's greater riches. And pick up with me in verse 28. I'll read down through verse 34. By faith he, that is Moses, kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood, and, and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch them. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? Time would fail me to speak of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight. The author of Hebrews is kind of giving us this highlight. It's, in fact, most of these things that he's covered in the book of Hebrews 11, these are the, these are the Bible stories we tell our kids if you look at most of the stories in Hebrews 11, you've got Cain and Abel, you've got Noah and the ark, you've got Abraham and Isaac, you've got Noah's, uh, I already said Noah's ark, you've got Moses in the Red Sea, uh, you've got Moses at the burning bush. Like most of these things, you've got Daniel in the lion's den, you've got Shadrach, Meshach, and most of these are the highlights that people think about when they think about the Bible. These are the kind of the stories we like to tell uh, our kids in, in kids camp and kids church and stuff like that because these stories are very dynamic. I think that a lot of times when the stories get told, we miss the point of them, but Hebrews is kind of giving us the point of them. So one of the things it says here in verse 28 is, by faith Moses kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch them. So I'm going to rewind really quickly to you, for you back to Exodus 11 and 12. And in Exodus 11 and 12, the people of God have been slaves in Egypt for 430 years. And God is about to rescue them and deliver them from Egypt. Now, at this point, God has already brought nine plagues upon the Egyptians to kind of uh, sh put the Egyptians in their place, to show the Egyptians that their gods are not gods at all, and to show that God is the real God. And there have been plagues, plagues of blindness and plagues of boils, and there have been plagues of locusts, and there have been plagues of frogs. And now it's down to the last one, the death of the firstborn, the Passover. And one of the things that's done here is that God comes to Moses and he tells the people, he says, listen, on the 10th day of this month, I want you to bring a lamb into your house. I want you to care for this lamb for four days. And on the 14th day of this month, you're supposed to slaughter the lamb at twilight, pour its blood into a bowl, take the blood and paint it on the doorframe of your house. And then God says, and then about midnight, when I come through the town, anybody who has blood on their door, I'll pass over them. But anybody who does not have blood on the door, he goes, I'll strike down the firstborn of every household. And he says, from, the, from Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the lowest prisoner in the, in the dungeon, he goes, the firstborn of every household that doesn't have blood on it will die. Well, here's the key element of this, and this is why Hebrews is mentioning it. Moses believes God. Moses believes that that's what God's going to do. And Moses stands in front of the people and he tells them, this is the 10th day of the month. Take a lamb into your house in four days, kill it. Uh, put the blood on your doorframe because God's going to come through in four days about midnight and strike down the firstborn of every household that's not covered in the blood. And the people believe it. And four days later, sure enough, God shows up. When I was a kid, everybody said it was a death angel, but the Bible says it was God. And so I don't know if my teachers were trying to make God nicer or whatever, you know, like he hired out that part, you know, to somebody else. Uh, but but God, God comes in and he puts to death uh, he puts to death everybody who does not have the covering of the blood on their door. God said he was going to do something. Moses and the people believed it, and their belief in it was their deliverance. The belief in it was their rescue. They believed what God was going to do, and he did. Three days later, this is verse 29, but it's actually three days later in the story. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. So here's what happens. Moses leads about a million and a half people out of Egypt, these people of God. They've been slaves there for 430 years. It's all they've ever known. Moses leads them out of Egypt. They come to the edge of the Red Sea. At some point within those three days after they've left, Pharaoh goes, man, what have we done by letting them all go? 
When they let them go, by the way, the Egyptians were going, get out of here. Your God's going to kill us all. And the Egyptians were giving them everything they had. Here's our treasures. Here's our wealth. Here's our livestock that they had left. Most of them were dead by that point. Here's what we have. Take it and leave. And now the Israelites are at the edge of the Red Sea. This, uh, uh, what would seem seemingly be an impassable like course. They're at the edge of the Red Sea, and now Pharaoh's decided, man, we've let all of our servants go. Let's go get them. And the servants show up, or the, the army shows up, and is hemming in the people of God from behind. So you've got the Red Sea in front, and you've got the army of Pharaoh behind you. And the Bible tells us that the Israelites were scared, that they said, man, like you brought us out into the desert to die. Here's Pharaoh. Now God, at this point, is leading the people, and by day he's a pillar of cloud, this towering cloud that just leads the people throughout the, the world at that day, and then at night he's a pillar of fire. Now, at this point, they've only been led by him for three days, but the Bible says that the pillar of fire goes behind them and makes a wall between them and the Egyptians so that neither of them will come over to the other all night long. It's really interesting. You'll miss it if you don't pay close attention. Not only was God keeping the Egyptians from coming and harming the Israelites, God was keeping the Israelites from giving up and going back to the Egyptians. He kept either side from going to the other all night long. And then the people are like, what are we going to do? They're angry at Moses. Moses gets down on his face. He begins to pray. It's one of three places in the Bible where God stops somebody from praying. He's like, what are you doing? And Moses is like, what are we supposed to do? There's the Red Sea. And God goes, get up and go. Like God's like, I've told you what to do. Go. And Moses gets up, and God tells Moses to raise the staff in his hand, and he raises the staff in his hand. And the text says in Exodus chapter 14 that the wind pushed the sea back all night long. And we don't know the tense from the Hebrew there. Like, we don't know if it took all night for the sea to be pushed back or if it's just talking about how it successfully held the waves back all night long. But either way, what's super cool about it is, I mean, that's pretty cool already that it was parted. But what's super cool about it is it says that they walked through on dry ground which means that the water that's in the ground, the wet, muddy earth, if you could imagine lifting up a river and moving it to the side, the ground's still sopping wet, and the water came up out of the ground and was moved to the side. I, I love it when it rains in West Texas. I, I just I enjoy big thunderheads coming in. I enjoy a rainstorm. Uh, with our Caliche parking lot out here and how messy it is, I always hope that if it's going to rain, it'll rain like on a Monday, Tuesday, so it's dry by Sunday. You know, because otherwise it's just a mess out here. I don't know if you've noticed, right? Uh, and so imagine if, if you could just like just lift the water out of the ground and push it to the side. That's essentially what happens. And the Bible says they did that by faith, that God said, go, and they went. They believed God would provide a way, and God provided a way. And it was the, through the middle of the Red Sea. And then the Bible says that the Egyptians, when the wall of fire is moved, the Egyptians go, let's go in after them. And the Egyptians go into the Red Sea as the Israelites are coming out on the other side. And the Bible says their chariot wheels begin to get stuck, and they begin to fall off. And the Egyptians go, the Lord God is fighting for them. Get out. And before they can get out, the Red Sea has collapsed on them and killed them all. God has provided, again, deliverance for them. The people believed God, and deliverance was supp supplied. Look, if you would, at verse 30. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. Now we have this guy named Joshua. Joshua uh, is Moses' successor, and he is taking the people of God, and he's going to be the guy who, after 40 years, now we're 40 years later into the story. Forty years later into the story, Joshua's leading the people into the promised land, this land that God had declared to Abraham about 500 years earlier. So this is going to be your, your descendants are going to live here. And Joshua's leading the people into the promised land. The first city that they're going to attack is this city, Jericho. It's the first city that the Israelites are going to come to. And I've always thought it was kind of funny. Like I imagine it, uh, I imagine Joshua meeting, Joshua has been a soldier for basically 40 years. Back in Exodus 17, the very first time that the people of God encountered battle. It was about two months after they've left Egypt, and Joshua's the one leading the charge, leading them into battle. So for the last 40 years, Joshua's been leading these people into skirmishes and battle. So he's equipped to do so, and the people are looking to him, and they're like, what are we going to do? And he goes, man, here's, here's what God's told us we're going to do. We're going to go into Jericho, and we're going to walk around the city once, and then we're going to come back to our camp. And, and you, like, I, just, I, I just wonder what people think. Like, here's our, here's our fearless leader. We've crossed the, the, uh, the River Jordan. Again, that was on dry land. God had stacked up the River Jordan so the people could cross through that. Forty years later, they've come into the promised land. They're about to attack their first city. And the plan is to go to the city and walk around at once and then go back to your camp. 
And, and they're like, okay. Psychological warfare, right? We're messing with their heads. Day two, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go. We're going to walk around the city once, and we're going to come back to our camp. Day three, we're going to go to Jericho, walk around the city once, come back to our camp. And we're going to do that day four, day five, and day six as well. And you've got to think that kind of these men who have been fighting with Joshua, you know, not fighting with him as a foe, but fighting alongside him, you've got to think that in a, a little bit they're kind of going, this, this doesn't make sense. Like, this is weird. It's like, this is what God's told us to do. And on day seven, what we're going to do is we're going to go into the city and we're going to w- march around it seven times. This city had a big wall all the way around it. And so they come to the city, and on day seven, they march around it seven times. And Joshua goes, and here's what we're going to do. After we've marched around it seven times with the trumpeters going in front of us, we're going to shout. And that's exactly what they did. Day one, walked around it once. Two, three, four, five, and six, walked around the city once. Day seven, walked around it seven times, gave a shout, and the walls came falling down, and the people of God ran in and took Jericho. It was such a powerful move of God that the rest of the cities uh, were fearful. The rest of the cities that the people of God were coming to were fearful of what God was going to do to them. God had demonstrated his power. This, This idea here is that Joshua believed God. It sounded ludicrous. It sounded silly. It sounded comical almost. But Joshua believed God and the people believed God. And because they believed what God, God had said he was going to do something and they believed it, And it turned out exactly as God had declared that it would. One of my favorite stories in the whole of the Bible, if you'll you'll look, well, let me pause really quickly here in verse 32. The author says this, What more shall I say, for time would fail me to tell of Gideon. Gideon. Gideon definitely demonstrates faith in God, but man, it took him a while to get there. Uh, it took Gideon a little while to, to get to a point where he believed in God. We can talk about that another time. Barak uh, was approached by Deborah, the prophetess, and said, hey, God's going to give you victory over this army. And Barak was like, man, I don't want to go by myself. You go with me. And Deborah goes, okay, I'll go with you, but now God's going to give the victory to a woman instead of you. And so Barak uh, believed God, but only marginally. Samson... Um, Man, Samson was a womanizer. Samson was always chasing, uh, like chasing a new girl, got him in trouble, <laughs> ended up having his hair cut off and his eyes gouged out. It was problematic for Samson. And yet Samson is listed here as somebody who believed God. Jephthah offered his own daughter as a sacrifice to God, still mentioned as someone who believed God. And then we get to David. And part of you kind of, if you know the stories of Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah really well, you kind of go, man, these guys are a little bit questionable. These guys are a little bit sketchy. And then you get to David, and you're like, David, man, he was the king after God's own heart. But then you remember that David also slept with his best friend's wife and then got her pregnant. And then when he found out he got his best friend's wife pregnant, he killed his best friend. And you go, okay, these are all sketchy guys. Uh, and and, and so, so all of these sketchy guys at some point in their life, for some reason or another, believed God. They believed something God had declared. Now, now don't, well, we'll get to it. Look at verse 33. The author, right, is telling us he doesn't have time to tell us about everybody. And he says, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, and stopped the mouths of lions. That one right there, that phrase right there, stop the mouths of lions, should make you think of Daniel from the Bible, one of my favorite characters in the scripture. There's only a few characters in the whole of the Bible that the Bible doesn't say something negative about. Daniel's one of those guys. Speaks very highly of him every time it speaks of him. And Daniel is, uh, at this point in the story, when he was thrown into the lions, if you're not familiar with the story, Daniel at this point is in his late 80s, uh, maybe, maybe 90s at this point. And Daniel has been a slave in Babylon for a long time. He's, he's been there for 70 years as a slave. And now Persia has defeated Babylon, and the new king Darius has come in and set himself up as kind of the power that be. And Daniel is recruited to serve the king and to kind of be a governor over the land of Babylon. And there's a couple of guys who are Babylonian who don't like that. Here's this Jewish slave who is now my boss, and these Babylonian guys don't like it. And they're like, we've got to find a way to kill this guy but we got to find a way to kill him according to the law. Like, we got to do it right. And so they start looking at Daniel for, for something they can get him in trouble for, and there's nothing that Daniel's done wrong. They can't find anything to accuse him over, so they say, okay, we've got to find a way to accuse him as it relates to his God. And one of the things that these guys notice is that Daniel prays three times every day to God. And so they come to King Darius and they say, look, we've got an idea. You're the new king. Show everybody your power and command that people can only pray to you for the next 30 days. 
And if anybody is caught praying to something or someone other than you, king, feed him to the lions. And the king had a big ego, so he goes, sounds great. Let's do it. And he put it into law. And the law of the Persians could not be broken, not even by the king. And so the rule was, if you pray to anybody but King Darius, you're going to die. Well, the Bible tells us in Daniel 6 that Daniel, having heard this commandment, went and prayed as he did to the Lord three times every day as he had done before. God was still God to him. He hadn't changed his opinion about who God was. His life is now imminently in danger, but it's not going to shift what he believes about God. So he goes to pray as he does every other day, and these guys spy on him, and then they go to the king and they go, hey, we found a guy who's praying to somebody other than you. And the king goes, who is it? And they say, it's Daniel. And the king loved Daniel so much, he tried to find a way to save Daniel from being thrown into the lion's den. But the law couldn't be broken, so he brought Daniel to the lion's den, and he had him thrown in, and he covered this, the hole with a stone, and he had it guarded. But as he threw Daniel in, he said, Daniel, may the God you serve protect you. The king doesn't sleep all night. The next morning, he runs to the lion's den. He has the lid removed. He goes, Daniel, was your God able to protect you? And Daniel calls up from the lion's den. He says, O king, live forever. He says, the Lord sent his angel to shut the mouth of the lions, for I am innocent in his sight, and also against you I've done no wrong. And the king lifts him out, right? Lifts Daniel out, protects Daniel from this, this suffering death. And then the king's so mad at the guys who falsely accused him or that were trying to entrap Daniel that he gets these three guys, their wives and their kids. I say three guys. We don't know that it was three guys. It could have been up to 120. I can tell you more about that another time. But there are a lot of guys that were accusing uh, Daniel, okay? And so there were all these guys that were accusing Daniel. And the Bible says that these men and their wives and their kids were thrown into the lion's den. And the Bible says that before any of them hit the bottom, Every single one of their bones had been crushed by the lions. So the lions who hadn't touched Daniel all night now are set free by God to do what they do, and they crush the bones of every single person. And you go, man, that's amazing how God saved Daniel. That's amazing. And, and then the next verse, verse 34, talks about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who, is, who quenched the power of the fire. This is also from the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This story occurs about 50 years earlier, 50 or 60 years earlier. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have been, uh, well, King Nebuchadnezzar loved himself. And so he built a statue 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide. It's a big statue, okay? And he commands that whenever the band starts playing the music, you should bow down and worship the statue. And anyone who doesn't do it will be thrown into the furnace. Well, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, because of Daniel, are now kind of in power in Babylon. And so all the rulers of Babylon are gathered together, and the music starts playing, and everybody bows down to worship this statue of gold, except for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And the guys who are bowing down and worshiping these Babylonians, they look at these Jewish guys who are thwarting the king, and they're mad about it. And they go to King Nebuchadnezzar, and they say, Nebuchadnezzar, here are these three guys who refuse to bow down to the statue. So Nebuchadnezzar has the three guys brought into his palace, and he says to the guys, I hear you won't worship my statue. I'll give you one more chance. When the music starts playing, bow down to worship, and if you don't, you're going to be thrown into the furnace. And they say to him this. They say, O king, this is Daniel chapter 3, beginning in verse 16. O king, live forever. O king Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to defend ourselves to you on this matter, for the God we serve is able to save us from the fire, but even if he does not, we won't serve anybody but him, and we won't worship anybody but him. And the Bible says Nebuchadnezzar's countenance, his face, the, the look of his face was changed towards them, and he became angry at them, and he commanded that the furnace be heated up seven times hotter than it had ever been heated, and he gets his strongest soldiers to bind him, and they throw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the furnace, and it's so hot that the guys who throw him in, throw them in are killed by the flames, by the heat. Nebuchadnezzar pops up and he says to his servant next to him, and he goes, how many guys did we throw in the furnace? He goes, I thought we threw in three, but I see four. And they're walking around. And one of them, the fourth one looks like the son of God. And Nebuchadnezzar calls for the furnace to be opened and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego walk out of the furnace unscathed by the flames. They don't even smell like flames. The Bible says not even the hair on their heads had been singed. The only thing different about them going, coming out of the furnace than going into the furnace was the ropes that had bound them. They don't have those anymore. And so here they are. They walk out. They've quenched the flames. Now listen to me very carefully. These are cool stories. These are amazing stories. God provides provision for his people, or God is the provision for his people with the Passover lamb. But, but the Passover lamb didn't save people for eternity, didn't wash sins away forever. The Passover lamb saved people for a moment. It saved them in that moment. 
It rescued them in that moment. It gave them deliverance in that moment. They crossed the Red Sea a few days later, but that didn't even save the people forever. That didn't wash away their sins forever. It just provided for them in that moment. It saved them again in that moment. Joshua led the people into Jericho. They were victorious over that city. They would go on to destroy 30 other cities before they started really running into obstacles. And just because they were victorious over Jericho and over the few that followed doesn't mean they continued to be victorious. In fact, they weren't. They began to lose because they began to turn away from God. They were rescued in that moment. Daniel was thrown to the lions and was rescued in that moment. But since the time of Daniel, plenty of Christians have been fed to lions, and they weren't rescued. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were rescued in that moment from the flames. But since that time, and even to this day, people are still, Christians are still being burned to death. Christians are still being martyred for the cause of Christ all over the place. Here's what I need us to do, because when I was a kid and I was sitting in church, the temptation was to hear these stories and to make them bigger than Jesus. Not intentionally. I, I, I mean, like, listen, when you're young and you tell the story of Daniel and the lion's den, and if you tell it with some vigor and some passion, and like, you go away going, man, that was awesome. And yet we treat this telling of the story of Christ a little bit differently, a little more soberly, a little more uh, somberly. And people don't usually, like, it, I don't know, uh, there seems to be less excitement about what Christ has accomplished than there is what happened to Daniel. There seems to be less excitement about what Jesus did on the cross than the fact that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were rescued from the fire. There seems to be less excitement about the empty tomb than the fact that the Red Sea was parted. And, and here's what I want us to understand. All of these people acted this way because of the faith they had in God for one moment after another. Specific thing, specific thing, specific thing. Moses put his faith in God. God said, here's the way to be saved from, uh, from the death of the firstborn. Here's the way to come through the Red Sea. Joshua, here's the way to destroy Jericho. Uh, Daniel, here's the way. I'm going to provide rescue for you from the lion. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I'm going to provide rescue for you from the fire. And all of those things are small and, and, and I'll say it this way. None of those things have the eternal weight of Jesus. None of those things provided forgiveness. None of those things provided eternal life. None of those things provided righteousness or holiness. None of those things uh, rescued from damnation. None of those things uh, overthrew the enemy. None of those things defeated the power of death. None of those things conquered the power of sin. None of those things, but they're great stories, and they're, and they're true stories. But you have to remember that Hebrews 11, what it's doing, the purpose of it, and we'll get into this in a couple more weeks. We'll start a little bit next week, but in two weeks we'll really try to conclude it all. But what the point of these stories are collected for us here in Hebrews 11 is to point us to the thing that's better. The author of Hebrews isn't taking a side note to give us the highlights of the Old Testament. The author of Hebrews is saying in chapter 1, Jesus is better. In chapter 2, Jesus is better. In chapter 3, believe that Jesus is better. These guys didn't and they died. Chapter 4, there's still time to believe. Chapter 5, he's better than Melchizedek. Chapter 6, he's better than Melchizedek. Chapter 7, he's better than the Old Testament priests and the Old Testament sacrifices and the Old Testament temple. He's better than all of this. Look at all these guys that we revere. Look at all these guys who believed God. Look at all these guys who trusted God. And spoiler for two weeks from now, then he gets to chapter 12 and he goes, and Jesus is better. Look at all these guys who accomplished all these things because they believed in individual promise of God and we believe in Jesus. Jesus provides righteousness. Jesus provides holiness. Jesus provides salvation. Our application today is this, that we should seek to develop the faith we have in Christ and find our strength in Him. Seek to develop the faith we have in Christ and find our strength in Him. That, that pastor, that story that I was telling you about when I was about 10 years old, uh, I, I, don't remember, I don't remember any of the things from the sermon. I remember he was the first preacher I'd ever seen that actually walked around, didn't stand behind the pulpit. I didn't know you could do that until I was 10. I thought, man, that's pretty awesome. Um, like, I remember thinking, like, are, are you allowed to do that? Like, that's, that's pretty awesome. That's pretty neat that you can, like, I had already wanted to be a preacher. I'd wanted to be a preacher since I was four. The preacher I had sat under until I was 10 
uh, was very stoic, stood behind the pulpit. When I saw this guy who was excited about Jesus and walked back and forth, I was like, that's the kind of preacher I want to be. Like, that's like, and like it, it shaped me from the time I was 10. I remember being there. It was a, it was a night service, and I, don't, I couldn't tell you if it was Wednesday night or, or Sunday night because in, in the 80s, you go to all the services. And, uh, and, and so, uh, so there I am, and I remember the preacher, his name is Chris, and I remember him talking about, uh, about faith. He goes, and he goes, listen, I, I'm speaking to you. This is what he said. I'm speaking to something along these lines. I'm speaking to you who believe. I'm speaking to you who have put your faith in Jesus. He goes, you're not done yet. Not that you aren't righteous, not that you aren't saved, but our faith is still in Jesus for today and for tomorrow and for the next day. Like our confidence is in Christ for now, in this moment, and for what comes next. And he said, are you putting your confidence in Jesus for the day to day? And I left that service, like ran out of it ran to the bathroom crying, uh, and this guy, I don't know what he must have thought, but I run into the bathroom. I nearly run him over as he's coming out of the bathroom. He's like, hey, kid, are you okay? I'm like, yeah, I just don't have any faith in God. <laughs> and I, don't, I, I honestly have no idea what he said at that point. I mean, what do, you, what, do you, what do you say at that point? I don't remember what he said, and I was like, I'm fine. And so he, he left. I don't, I don't know. I don't know what he did. He left eventually, I guess, and, uh, and I just cried for a little bit in the bathroom, and the church was over, and we went home, and I remember laying in my bed that night. Um, I was a prankster. Uh, my mom would come and sit on the edge of my bed every night to tuck me in and pray with me, and I, I would usually have underneath the edge of my mattress a whoopee cushion, uh, just because. It's funny, uh, and, uh, and every time she'd sit down, you know, anyway, that night, no whoopee cushion. There was more pressing matters. And, uh, and, and I, just, I just remember saying, like, I, I, I want to be somebody who, who trusts God for day to day. I'm trusting him for my salvation. That's the highest thing we can trust him for. But I, I realized I trusted him to save me. I trusted him to wash away my sins. I trusted him to make me righteous and holy, but I didn't trust him for this moment. My confidence wasn't in him for this moment. My attitude was, I'll get it from here. And I, I just want to set you free a little bit. I mean, technically, I can't set you free, but I want to give you the understanding that you are free. This journey you began with God, if you're someone who's put faith in Jesus, this journey you began with God was not by your own power, and it will not be continued, and it will not be completed by your own power. This is by the work of God in you. It's, it's why Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, this group of churches who had put faith in Jesus for salvation, but now we're like, we got it from here. They believed that somehow they could tap out and it like, or they would tap Jesus out and they'd tap in and they're like, we'll take over. And Paul says this to them in Galatians three. He says, you foolish Galatians. I want you to take note of that. You foolish Galatians who has bewitched you before whose eyes Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Did you receive the spirit by faith or by works of the law? The answer, by the way, is you receive the Holy Spirit by faith. And he says then, having begun by faith then, why are you trying to be made whole or complete by works? Here's the question he's asking the people. He's like, why do you believe that Jesus is enough for salvation, but not enough for today? Not enough for this moment. Not enough for your work and your family and your kids that you're raising. Not enough for the trials that you're going through and the struggles that you're going through. Not enough to overcome your addictions or your sins or whatever. Why, why is Jesus enough for heaven but not enough for this moment? It's the question. And I think the reason that we kick against it is we have this kind of mindset I don't know if it's just an American mindset. I think it's probably kind of a Western mindset. We have this mindset that I got to pull myself up by my own bootstraps. I got to take care of things. I'll get it done. And let's just be honest. Like there, there are a lot of things we've got to get done. There just are. We all have responsibilities. I have a, a, a tax form that I have to do tomorrow. It's, oh, I've done it. I have to mail it by tomorrow. Um, and it's, uh, it's like an annual tax report, and I hate it. I hate it. And, uh, and our printer wasn't working, and so I, I texted or called like eight people. Like, do you have a printer that's working so you can print these out for me so I can mail them off? And finally, Micah goes, I have one. So uh, he, he printed it off for me, but it's like I have to do it. If I don't do it, I get a letter from the IRS, and it's, that's not fun, you know? 
I have to do it. I have, to, I have to, and I know this sounds really, like, I will tell you that sometimes I'm a little embarrassed that, you know, about my work, my job. You know, these, these people are like, oh, yeah, I'm a doctor. I'm saving lives. And, and I'm like, I, I, I paint <laughs> pretty pictures, <laughs> you know. Like, that's what I do. Uh, if, if, I, if, if I don't paint, though, I don't sell paintings. And if I don't sell paintings, I don't pay the bills, right? Like, I have to work. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, my confidence can't be in my ability. My confidence can't rest on my own shoulders. It has to be, my confidence has to be in Christ. The, the author of Hebrews is pointing to all these people and saying, look, their confidence was in God. And then he's reminding the people, and we'll get to this in a few weeks, he's reminding the people that this is what God says about Jesus Hold fast your confidence in this. I shared with you last week. It's one of my favorite verses. Hebrews 10.35. Do not throw away your confidence. It has a great reward. The author of Hebrews is saying, put your confidence in Christ. Here's what God says about Jesus. Believe it. Trust it. Live in it. Let it shape you. And then he goes, here's a whole bunch of other guys who believed God too. And look at how their lives turned out. It's an invitation to hold to the faith we have. I have literally heard preachers say, and it ticks me off, and that's not the word I want to use. I want to use a different one, but this is recorded, so I'm trying to be nicer. I have literally heard preachers say, you don't have to believe what I'm saying about Jesus, but just in case I'm right, ask Jesus to save you. They call it fire insurance. I've literally heard preachers say that. This is your insurance to not go to hell. That's not faith. That is not faith. That's not righteousness. That's a lie. That is misinformation that saying some words somehow cover you just in case it's real. Faith is saying, I believe this. I know it to be true. But Christian, somewhere along the way, we fell asleep and we thought that, we asked people about their faith. Tell me about your faith in God. And typically, typically the answer is, I, I got baptized when? or I became a preacher, or sorry, I, be, I became a Christian when? And then they give you that information. But Jesus hasn't quit being Jesus. And, and the way you needed him yesterday is the way you need him today. He is still God. And some of us feel so weak, and we feel, feel frail, and we feel stupid. Some of us more often than others. Listen to what Paul says here. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 12, beginning in verse 9. Paul says this, But God said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in my weakness. Therefore I boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ can rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Hear this. Sort of the subtitle today, because of our theology, is that in Christ, we're more than conquerors. And typically when we say stuff like that, in Christ, we're more than conquerors, we think about walking through a parted Red Sea, and we think about overthrowing the Egyptians, and we think about the walls of Jericho falling down, and we think about walking out of the lion's den unscathed, and we think about walking out of the furnace without even a, a hint of smoke on our skin. But what I want you to know and understand is that in Christ, you are more than conquerors in that you have been made righteous. You have been made holy. You are justified. You are loved. You are adored by God. And that whatever happens, catch this. Paul says, I'm content with insults and weakness and hardships and persecutions and calamities. Why? In my weakness, God's strength is demonstrated. We who began by faith continue by faith. We who said at some point, God, I need you for salvation, are the people who say today, I need you in this moment as well. I need you still. The number of people that I am grief-stricken for and broken for right now gets longer by the week. And then I've got to carry my own, like, I say carry my own. And then I have my own insecurities and fears that seem to always just kind of hang out in the shadows of my brain. And then I find out I hurt somebody's feelings, and I'll feel that for the next six months because that's how I'm wired. And then I watched the money in the account get smaller and smaller. Although Micah can tell you, we've been friends for nearly 19 years, and we've had this conversation a lot. And Michelle can tell you, we've been together for 15 years. Never once, not once, 
have I lacked what I needed? Not once. And yet, there's like a dollar amount in my head for whatever reason that when the bank account hits that amount, I think, man, this is the time. This is the time. It's not going to work. This is the time I'm nervous. This is the time I'm scared. I, we've, been down, we've been down to 40 or $50 with all the bills written out, all the checks written out, and not put in the mail because we had 40 bucks in the account. And then I realized I've got to go in the mail today because if they don't go in the mail today, and then I'm going to get a late fee on top of this, and I can't afford these, much less the ones with the late fees. And we put it in the mail. No, this is not an exaggeration. And, and I go to bed going, God, the bills are in the mail. They're going to start clearing in three days. Do something. <laughs> and I woke up the next morning and I checked my email and I had an email that said, you've received a donation of $4,900 to your ministry. And I went, what the heck? And I went and looked at who it was and it was a buddy of mine who, from high school who was an engineer in Saudi Arabia for an oil company. And I messaged him and I said, dude, you have no idea he's a believer. I said, you have no idea how timely that was. I was like, all of my bills were going out. Like, I... I I didn't have the money. And he goes, man, I am so sorry. He goes, I've had that sitting in my bank set aside for you for four months. I kept forgetting to send it. And I just couldn't sleep yesterday. And I knew, like, I got to get this sent. That's cool. That's super cool. I can tell you some really cool stories about how God provided for me in India when I was there. I can tell you really cool stories. Here's the problem. All of those cool stories are not the object of my faith. Christ is. And if the money hadn't been there and things were worse today than they were yesterday, God is still God. And my faith still rests in him. Bring on the weaknesses. Bring on the calamity. Bring on the trials. Because in my weakness, Christ's strength is demonstrated. And let me end with this. Because I need you to know this. I need your faith to rest in this. You are loved by God. When, once you've put your faith in God and you become a child of God, you've moved from an enemy to, a, to a, a family member. Like this idea that Christians say, and I don't know why we say it. I do know why we say it. But Christians say stuff like, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. They say that to be humble. But you need to be a little bit more bold. You're not a sinner saved by grace. You were a sinner who has been saved by grace and are now a saint, were a sinner. And you go, Ryan, yeah, but what about my conduct? What about the things I'm doing wrong right now? Christ is sufficient for those things. Christ is bigger than those things. I guarantee you, you've screwed something up this week. Praise God that Christ is bigger. Praise God. Praise God that my actions and my stupidity does not bring me nearer to God because then I'm in trouble, but it also doesn't move me further from him. That what brought me into the fellowship, fellowship with God was my faith. And what, what empowers me in this moment, what, what enables me to say that I'm more than a conqueror, is, is that he still loves me now. And I believe it, and I trust it, and I relish in it. Listen to Romans 8. Paul says this, having it in chapter 6 just said, here's who we are through the cross. Having in chapter 7 said, here's what it looks like to live under the law. Having in chapter 8 said, here's what it's like to have the Spirit of God. He says this, he concludes Romans 8, or this section with this. What then shall we say to all these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies, who can condemn Listen to that. Who can bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies who can condemn. Listen, you're going to have people who, who think that they can condemn you, and there are going to be plenty of times you might condemn yourself. I need you to know that doesn't stand. God is the one who declares you righteous. The people who condemn you in your own self-condemnation cannot tarnish that, cannot undo that. In Zechariah chapter 3, we have a picture of God, and we have a picture of, of Joshua the high priest standing in front of God, and there's angels around the throne of God, and at the right hand of Joshua is Satan, and Satan goes, look at this guy. Look at this filthy guy who's a sinner, and God says to Satan, he says this, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. This is one I have plucked from the fire. Remove his filthy robes and clothe them in clean garments, and I want you to know that God, God justifies you, not your work. Not your behavior. 
Those of you who are mad at yourself this morning for something you failed at this past week, I can't tell you there won't be earthly consequences. If you've burned a bridge, I can't tell you it will get built back. If you've compromised yourself at work, I can't tell you you'll keep your job. But what I can tell you is the love of God has not changed. Rest in that. Put your faith in that. Continue to let your faith be invested in and directed by the truth of who God is. Who is there who can condemn us? Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised from the dead, who is now at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, shall distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Don't, don't read this as we're more than conquerors. We'll go through our Red Sea. Don't read this as we're more than conquerors. We'll, we'll overthrow the Egyptians. Don't read this as we're more than conquerors. We'll escape the mouth of the lions. We have no idea what's in store. We have no idea the persecution that will come against the Christians in this country. But I promise you there are Christians all over the world who stay steadfast in the love of Christ even though they're being persecuted to death. When you read this, we're more than conquerors. Think about the love of God. Think about what comes next. Think about eternity. And he says, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all of creation can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Having come to God, nothing removes you from his hand. Jesus says six, three times in John 6 that those that the, the Father gives to me will come to me and will never be cast out. Nothing can separate you from God. You're, you're thinking, you're going, yeah, but like maybe I've tarnished it a little bit. And you're thinking back on a sin like I do sometimes from 10 years ago or 20 years ago or maybe, this, maybe yesterday. Nothing from the present, nothing that you could do, Nothing in heaven or hell will separate you from the love of God. Nothing in all creation can shake how God feels about you. And what I want us to do is be people who say, man, I've put my faith in Jesus for my salvation. But I want us to go a step beyond that and say I'm seeking to develop and grow my faith so that I can understand how deeply I'm loved by him. So that I can rest in how much he has lavished his mercy upon me and his kindness upon me and his grace upon me. That our faith will, will rest in those truths about who God is. It, I, don't know, I, don't, I don't know if you've ever in your life been loved unconditionally. But uh, the, the best a human can do, the best unconditional love a human can do is, is really good. <laughs> but it pales in comparison to the unconditional love of God. Maybe some of you feel like you've always had to earn your love. You've always had to earn your place. You've always had to earn your acceptance. You've always had to earn your accolades. It, it, guys, come to Jesus. Quit earning. Quit earning. You have it. By faith, you have it. Those of us who have said, God, I believe that Jesus is God. I believe that he's died. I believe that he's been raised from the dead. I believe that he ascended into heaven. We who believe in the resurrection... We who believe that Jesus is God, we who believe that he's the source of eternal life, we are righteous and we are holy and we are saved and we are redeemed and we are overcomers. Rescued from the corruption of this world through the grace and the love of Jesus Christ. Man, I want you to know that. If you're in here today and you've never put your faith in Jesus, the Bible says it this way in Psalm 95, uh, verses 7 and 8, and then repeats it three times in the book of Hebrews twice in chapter 3 and once in chapter 4. Today, if you hear God's voice, do not harden your hearts. Today, if you hear God's voice, today is the day of salvation. Listen to me. I put my faith in Jesus, best I can remember, February 1st, 1979. That's when I said, Jesus, you're my God. I have been working, working is the wrong word because you're going to take the wrong thing from it. It has been my aim ever since then to let my faith continue to rest in Christ for my family, for my provision, for my day-to-day. -day. That what I believe about Jesus would shape who I am. And that's going to bring us to our prayer today, which I already shut. But that's going to bring us to our prayer today, which says this. God, grant us deep and lasting faith in your work and in your promises.
God, grant us deep and lasting faith in your work and in your promises. You'll have the Red Sea moments, <laughs> perhaps. The Jericho-type things, the things like Daniel, the things like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but those will not be the things that you relish when you stand before God. That our faith is in Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Hebrews 13 calls him. Actually, Hebrews 12. Let's spend just a moment and pray. Right where you are, would you just ask, God, give us deep and lasting faith in your works and promises. Take a moment to pray that. God, I do thank you. Thank you for the examples of these people. Abel and Enoch and Abraham and Noah and Moses. Thank you, God, for Joshua and Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego and Barak and Samson and David and Samuel and all the prophets. People who at various times for various things put their faith in you, O oh God and saw how faithful you were. Let them be a reminder to us that what you have declared about Jesus is true as well. That as they trusted your promises, so we can also trust your promises. Not just for our salvation, but for this moment. This moment right here, where sin has been defeated and death has been overthrown. God, where we can put our confidence in you where we trust you for our family, for our care, that when trials and calamities come, we're unshaken because we know that we're still in your love. God, where we know that nothing can separate us from who you are. That no thing in all of creation, no thing in heaven or hell can undo the love you have for us. Let us rest in that. Let it be comfort to us. Let it be strength for us. For your name, for your glory, and for your honor, Lord God. Amen.